Amato's fifth quarter is partnered with the Inner Sanctum. The Inner Sanctum, founded in 2020, is the new ball game in sports journalism, which aims to take you behind the closed doors of sporting clubs around the country in an effort to tell the stories of those on the field. Visit the Inner Sanctum at www.theinnersanctum.com.au as well as following them on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and LinkedIn. The Inner Sanctum, unique interviews, unique content for you. This is Travis Stokes. This is Greg Oddy. This is Carson Edwards. This is Brett Maher. This is Dale Pickett. This is Eugene Greenwich. This is Kevin Brooks. This is Jack Fitzpatrick. This is Dale McDonald. This is Sam Jacobs. This is Cal Brooks. This is Marcus Burris. This is Sean Redditch. This is Tony Spackleton. This is Andrew Blahoff. This is Graham Corn. And you're listening to Amato's Fifth Quarter. Welcome to episode number 18 of Amato's Fifth Quarter. I'm your host, Dan, and I hope this podcast app finds you well. Hope everyone's doing well. This is an episode that has been requested for such a long time, and I, uh, people have been anticipating it every, ever since I've, I've said I'm going to have this guy on the show. Everyone's been asking me, when's it coming out? When's it coming out? Can't wait to listen to it. I just hope it lives up to everyone's expectations because to even just get this guy on the show was was a thrill. I mean, someone that is renowned in, in the football world, particularly in South Australia. My special guest tonight is SANFL legend and the inaugural Adelaide Crows coach, Graham Corns. Now, for those who have listened to Cornsy before, just an encyclopedia of knowledge. So many incredible stories through his time in football. Big thank you to Graham Corns for agreeing to come on the show. 
Having a look at what he achieved on the field as a player first off. So he played for Glenelg. He was one of the very best players to ever play for the Tigers. 317 games and 339 goals. He won a premiership in 1973. Was three times the Glenelg best and fairest. Captain the club in 1978 and is in the Glenelg Hall of Fame. He also spent some time in Victoria playing for the North Melbourne Kangaroos, of course. Played five games in 1979. And also played a couple of seasons at South Adelaide where he was also the player coach. So he, as a coach, coached South Adelaide, Glenelg, coached the South Australian national team and, of course, was the very first coach of the Adelaide Football Club from 1991 to 1994. 89 games coached in total for the Adelaide Crows. We talk about that first preseason in the very first game, 1991, round one against Hawthorne at Football Park, 86-point win. We talk about the 93 season um, and getting into the preliminary final that year and, of course, the devastating loss for the Adelaide Crows against Essendon after leading by 42 points at halftime to let it slip. But, look, nothing can take away from what a figure he is here in South Australia and, and in Australia as well in the football spectrum. He is not only in the South Australian Football Hall of Fame, but he's also in the Australian Football Hall of Fame. And just to have him on was fantastic. He was a guy that... I've always wanted to have on and, and to, to get the opportunity to speak with him was definitely a dream come true. So I really, really hope this does live up to the expectations and hopefully you all enjoy this chat with Graham Corn. So without further ado, let's bring the man on from Glenelg, North Melbourne, South Adelaide and the Adelaide Football Club. It's Graham Corns about to come on the ground. Very quick to play the ball on, up towards the forward line. Corns in front, takes the mark and advances. Corns and Corns over Oh, goodness gracious, Ian. The Makita mark of the day is under tremendous pressure now with that one from Graham Corns. 14 kicks to Graham Corns in the forward pocket and five goals. Welcome back to Amato's fifth quarter and today I'm very excited about this one because we've got an icon of South Australian football, the inaugural Adelaide Crows coach, Graham Corns. Cornsy, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate your time here today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. So, Cornsy, you finished up at the Crows in, in 1994 and, of course, we'll, we'll get into that later on in the chat, but could you maybe give some of the listeners a bit of an insight into what you've been up to since then? I mean, of course, you've been in the media and done a few things there, but how is life treating you these days in 2021 and how has the last sort of 26, 27 years gone uh, for you? <laughs> how much time have you got? <laughs> All the time in the world. No, no, well, look, I was lucky. Um, before the Crows came along, I was, I was coaching Glenelg, but I was also working at 5AA, I did a breakfast show at 5AA in, in Adelaide, one of the radio stations. And um, So when I finished the Crows, one of the legends of South Australian radio, Ken Cunningham, had been doing a, a drive show with uh, David Hooks. And um, when Hooks, he went to Melbourne. Uh, he got a job with the, the new um, uh, satellite television. I can't remember the name of it, but, but he, he moved uh, to Melbourne like a... Like a pay TV opportunity he had so there was a spot opened up and I worked with Ken Cunningham in the drive show the sports drive show for quite a few years after that and then um, what happened oh KG um, 
retired with Zach and, and I worked in with uh, Stephen Rowe for a few years and uh, then I retired, so semi-retired and I've been doing a little bit of stuff in the media like Saturday morning program and I write a column for the advertiser and do some commentary or comments for, for Channel 7 so pretty much media stuff. I had haven't done much footy. I had a couple of years where I coached our state team, our state league team, the sample team because um, they, they couldn't get any of the, the local coaches to do it so that was a bit of a, an experience for me but it was good to get back in after like 20 odd years of not coaching but but no, pretty much um, pretty much tied up in the media really. I've listened to your podcast that you've got conversation with Cornsey and um, in particular, I loved you, the one you did with Anthony Kalia and uh, Marsha Hines. I'm sure that's a bit of fun. Look, that is great. That sort of came out of nowhere, really. I'd, when I was working full-time at the radio station, I, I said, look, I'd love to uh, a bit more of an extended interview with some of the people. And this was back in 2006, I think. And I did a couple of, about half a dozen sort of pilot episodes that were only half an hour long, but it didn't really go anywhere because there was no programming space for it. They just they filled holes with it a little bit. But then a few years ago, three years ago, they asked me if I'd do it again, but with a with a, an hour format between uh, like three o'clock and four o'clock. So and that's been really good. So interviewing really well. Anthony was great. Yeah, Marshy was great. I mean, everybody's great really because everyone's got a story to tell. I really enjoyed doing that. Yeah, awesome. Now, Cornsey, you've always been known for your passion for South Australian football, and you're certainly one of the biggest names we have here in South Australia and Adelaide. But one thing mm-hmm. many people may not know about you is you're actually born in Victoria. Yeah, we don't tell too many people because <laughs> people like to have a crack at me for that. But look, I was born in Victoria. There's no doubt about that. But when I was seven or eight, my parents had had a really nasty divorce, my mother and father. But, and, um, well, Dad started afresh. It was, it was a really messy time for myself and my, my very young brother, Wayne, four years younger. And he'd actually been in an orphanage. Um, and I, I was taken to the same orphanage for a couple, only for a couple of weeks, but I don't know how long, he, we don't know how long he'd been there. We've been trying to find out. But then Dad came and got us. He'd, he'd, uh, met a new partner who became our stepmother. And we moved to Adelaide, and um, obviously I'm proudly South Australian, and want people to know that. But um, without my stepmum, I'm not sure where we would have ended up. Dad was a really hardworking guy. He was a roof tiler until his back packed up, but he he worked really hard to try and provide. But we started with nothing over here, and, and so finally established himself. They they moved back. Um, my father and my stepmother and my brother. And then my another little brother came along, Kim. They moved back to Victoria when I when I'd left home and gone to Wyala. So they're Victorian. I'm South Australian. So no confusion there. Hopefully. So you never you'll never classify yourself as a Victorian. Yeah, home is where you choose to live. Yeah, I thought you were going to say that. Sure. And you spent a little bit of time in the army as well. You're a Vietnam War veteran. If you're uh-huh. if you're happy to talk about it, could you give the listeners, just a bit of an insight into that sort, that experience and 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 your time there. Well, that's a bit that's a bit harder to do. Look, I'll, I'll try. We were in, we we're involved in the 
Vietnam War, looking at the conflict in Vietnam, because part of our um, commitment to the Southeast Asian Treaty Organisation, which was an alliance of countries like America and I think India, Great Britain, but so America sent troops over there when the war escalated. When the North Vietnamese invaded South Vietnam, the the Americans sent troops over, and then we obviously under the treaty agreed to do it. So. But we didn't have a big enough army, so they introduced national service where you were drafted. If you when you turned 20, you had to register for national service, and every three months they'd have a ballot where they draw out birthdays out of a barrel. And if your if your birthday came out, you had to go in the army, and you had to go in for two years. Which I mean, it sounds barbaric now when you think about it, <laughs> because. And they were training guys as soldiers and sending them to Vietnam. And some guys, were, some guys were killed the day they got there. Like a national, you know, one day you could have been working as a clerk or a, you know, an apprentice, or a carpenter. Or, although you did wait until they finished your apprenticeship, or and you in one one day you're that, and the next day you're in the army. Three months later, you're um, training as an infantry soldier. Then six months later, you're in a war zone and some guys got shot on the first day so so look it was it was exciting at the time I have to say because when you're 20 years of age you don't equate actions with outcomes so I was, it was for me it was a bit of an adventure I, I got my call up papers uh, one Saturday morning we used to get mail on Saturday morning some call up notice came which is just a letter from the from the government saying they had reported at a certain time I remember it clearly because we played Sturt at Glenelga Oval and we lost by a solitary point. A solitary point. But but anyway, I had, I had my call-up deferred to the end of the footy season. On the, so on the 2nd of October 1968, I had to march into Keswick Barracks and they took us to Pukapunyal and made soldiers of us, or tried to. But they actually did make it. Well, natural servicemen were very good soldiers once they'd been trained. And, and if you're unlucky... If you were unlucky, you got sent to Vietnam as a combat soldier or somebody who worked in logistics who, you know, there was 8,000 troops in Vietnam at any one time, probably 2,000 or 3,000, maybe two to 3,000 of those were combat soldiers. The rest were in logistics and support. So, um, yeah, and there was, you know, it was a war zone. It was a war zone. There was a war going on and you had an enemy wanting to kill you and you wanted to kill them. So it's pretty graphic to try and talk about and describe if you haven't been there but um, and a lot of guys who were sent and came back uh, it's still impacted pretty heavily and it's like nothing else nearly 50 years ago now yeah because I, I, I would gather going through that sort of experience would mean you have incredible fortitude when you come out of that sort of experience well you know I'd, I'd liken it to a, a footy team in as much that it was all male, so that we we didn't we didn't have uh, frontline female soldiers like they have these days. So it really wasn't brotherhood, and uh, you had you had to work closely. We, we, we were we operated in platoon units, like each there's battalions. Battalions got companies, companies companies got three platoons in it, and each platoon's got three sections. Now sections about ten guys, or it should be ten guys, but. Normally it would be about seven to ten or, you know, six, seven or eight guys because other guys want to leave or they were sick. So 
So you're working with that small group, that section, and the, the team spirit has to be, and the understanding has to be really uh, at an optimum. So um, you know, there's, a, there's a closeness there, and then the, the lived experience of, of combat, uh, you know, you might have, you know, we've been involved in contact, and, and some of the guys might have been injured or killed, so that, that's, that's something that you bear. Uh, for quite a for quite a few years, well, for the rest of your life, really, you do. But but it was at the time. <laughs> at the time, it all still seemed like a big adventure until something drastic happened. But it was like it was only two years, and then I got out and you know, day I, the day I got home on a Friday, and then played footy for Glenelg on a Saturday, Glenelg Reserve on the very next day on Saturday, and. Um, Luckily, the footy club was there to provide support and uh, a framework and probably a discipline because they had to train and it was coming into the final series. So I ended up getting back in the league team and playing in the grand final in 1970. So I was very fortunate. I had footy, which saved me as distinct from some soldiers who would have got off the plane. And we left Vietnam with Nui Dat on a Thursday morning. Got home on a you know Thursday night. Probably get back to Adelaide Airport on a Friday morning, and then goes. They might have gone back to the farm in the country, or gone back to the suburbs at Kilburn or Elizabeth or Renella, and they didn't have the framework or the discipline. So a lot of guys struggled to, to fit back into the society, and still and still struggle. So, do you think any of the experiences you went through in your time in the army helped your football career in any way? Absolutely, I do. Because, well, firstly, it was the you know the team spirit, how important that was working together. But what was really, uh, what was really impactful was how how you could you could always go a bit further. I mean, there were times in Vietnam and and, and operations and exercises before we went with our training us, where we were totally deprived of sleep. And you just you you couldn't go another step. You know, you felt you were completely exhausted. You didn't have enough food in the dry season. You didn't have enough water. And um, but then when you had to get up and go, you did get you, you could you, you could always you could always do a bit more. You could always you could always find a, a reserve of energy. And I, I used that you know, to, to great impact. I think to, when I was coaching. Because I'm pretty sure the teams I coached in the old sample were fitter, and and did spend spend more time on school development than than other teams that we had. So I'm pretty, you know, I, I would be confident of that. And a lot of that came from the experience I had in the army, and indeed I took that through into when I was coaching the Crows as well. The fact that you know you can always, you never say never. You can always just you can always find a little bit more and. And of course, the importance of teamwork. You are totally reliant on your your mates when you're in the army. It's reliant on you, and the same on the food field. Yeah, very well answered. So, taking it back to football, was was the game always a passion of yours, and did you always want to play at an elite level? Well, the game was always a passion of mine, but I had no um, ambition or expectation that I could play at a league level. I mean, I love the game, don't, and I still do, and I still yearn for the fact that I 
could play. But um, from the very first, you know, my first memory is watching my dad play footy. And then and he would tell me stories about old footballers. And then, of course, when I got a chance to play, I was a, played, played um, for Ranella. We moved to Ranella when, when Ranella was still a country town. And um, they have an under-14 team, but they were always short, so the, the 11-year-old kids could play. <laughs> there was always a few... So I was 11 playing the under 14, so so I just loved it. So I could play footy. Then as I got a bit older, I could boundary umpire for the um, for the B grade, or or if the B grade was short, I could play for the B grade. So say play senior Colts and then B grade, and then boundary umpire for the A grade at Ranella. But then then I moved to Wyala to work for the BHP and played for Central Wyala. But I still, you know, the league football players to me were just gods. They were just heroes. They just so big and strong. And even the guys who played at Rinella in the A grade, you know, guys like Georgie Wright and Anthony Gunn and like legends like Darcy Cox, who was a North Adelaide Premiership player, finished up at Rinella. You know, those guys were, they were just gods. But anyway, when, when I was in Wyala, um, I grew. I, I, you know, I went from being a little kid and I grew um, all of a sudden and I was played a season, season of senior Cox up there and and the next year, I was playing A grade for Central Wyala, and but even then, I was, you know, I was, that's when that's when I first saw Barry Robertson, and gosh, what a player he was! And we saw Barry go down and play for North Adelaide, and, and everyone just was so proud of him because he was from Wyala, and and he and he was so good. And so, but I, I virtually the year I played my first game for Glenelg which was 1967, a few months prior, I'd virtually given up footy to go surfing. We thought we were surfers. Really? <laughs> there's, no, there's no surfing, there's no surfing whale, but no. we thought we were. So we'd go, we'd go down the coast a bit. But And then Harry Kernahan, who was, was uh, at Glenelg Legend, was coaching. He was working for the bank, and he was coaching South Whaler. So I was playing against South, we played against South Whaler. He invited a couple of Glenelg officials up to see me. I don't think they were that impressed, but anyway, they invited me down to train, and then I met for the first time Neil Curley, and he, well, I had a training run, and he said, well, look, go back and finish your, go back and finish your season, and when the end of the year, we'll give you a run in our in our B grade, and I said, that's a big deal, so, so our season finished, I came down on a Tuesday night and trained with Glenelg, which was only the second time I'd trained with them, and, uh, Went back to went back to Wyala. Went was at the drive-in on the Thursday night, on the, the Wyala drive-in, and somehow was able to listen to the teams that were read out. And, and they, Lindsay Head was on the program, the great Lindsay Head, and they read out my name as the second ruck for Glenelg to play against Sturt on the Oval. You know, the very next Saturday. So it was just amazing. It was just an amazing. I trained with them twice. Didn't know anyone. Played for Glenelg against Sturt at Only Oval and we beat them. Glenelg had finished yacht bottom the year before and they, Glenelg won, Norwood lost and Glenelg won finals first time for quite a few years. So, so then it just went crazy after that and I played the next couple of games. First final against Port Adelaide. I was badly injured, finished up in hospital for a week but, but then, then, the, then the season was over. And I came down from Wyla for the start of the 1968 season, and, and um, 
and that was that was the beginning of it all, really. But in terms of thinking I could play league footy, I never ever had that ambition or, or belief. Just you just need someone to believe in you, and Neil Curley always did that. I don't know what I do not know. I do not know what he saw in me, but he gave me an opportunity, and he and he and he kept giving me opportunities. You know, he's, he's a significant figure in my life. So what about the 1973 Grand Final? Obviously, playing for Glenelg under Neil Curley, as you said, against North Adelaide, there's 56,000 people there at Adelaide Oval. Didn't have the greatest start to the game, about 20 points down at, at quarter time, but you end up winning by seven points. And I've always wanted to ask you, Cornsey, about that mark you take late in the last quarter and you go back to, to kick the goal to put the Bays back in front. Do you actually, do you remember that moment? Picked up by Marriott. Kiss kick back towards the goal square again. Corns from behind. He grabbed it. Corns mark. A magnificent mark. Oh, that was one of the freak marks of the year. And I'll tell you what, if he caps it off with a goal here, that will put them one point in front. The kick by Corns is on its way. Right. He got it through. And Corns has put that goal, his first, incidentally, on the board. So that is it. There it is, the year of the Tiger, ladies and gentlemen. Lanelle running out winners with that last goal from Stanley and a fantastic effort by the Bays to come back after being headed in the last few moments. Oh, yeah, certainly. Do. I mean, you, ne- you never forget moments like that. We being... We, so I, by that time, I'd, I'd started in the end of 68. So we'd been... I'd been playing for four or five years then, and the two years I was in the Army, 69, and seven, we got through to the grand final and got beaten by Sturt. But I was, so I didn't ever feel really part of that because it was, I, I, I played a few games in 1969 and uh, I got back from Vietnam right at the start of the final series of, in 1970. So it was probably only four, four games I played in 1970, but we lost both grand finals, so that was disappointing. So when we got through to 73, we were the, we were the dominant team all year. We were just, you know, North Adelaide had beat, beaten us at Prospect, but we had a couple of injuries that day. Um, so we were raging favourites. They'd won the two previous grand finals. Barry Robbins playing, the great Barry Robbins was playing for them, and they had a good team. But and uh, we were we were we we worked our way to be back comfortably in front at three-quarter time, but it was a really hot day. It was a really hot north wind blowing. And somehow the, the wind died a little bit in the last quarter, and they just kept, they came, they came at us. They just they just came at us, and then they hit the front at about the 28-minute mark, and John Plummer took a mark, kicked the goal. And I hadn't had, I just, I wasn't happy with my game. I just, I just started to cramp. Um, and then, but the ball came down, at that crucial time, and then Craig Merritt stopped it from going out of bounds, hooked it back over his head, and I just—it was just one last desperate effort to do something, and, and somehow the mark stuck somewhere between the chest and the chin, and the arm, and then I had to go back and kick the goal, which—which which happened. I don't know how, because every time I tried to replicate it after that, I couldn't do it. But it was um, wasn't that far out, but it was a reasonably sharp angle, but it, but it went straight. And then, so that put us a point up, but the game wasn't over then. But, but eventually, uh, the ball came back down again. John Sandland took a mark right on the siren and put the ball through after the siren. So we actually won by seven points. It was, it was just a relief. You know, we'd, we'd been a good team. 
think that they got to these grand finals, but hadn't won one, it was just a relief. And, and of course, for all the whole town went crazy. We had we only ever won one previous premiership. That was in 1934. But so it was a great day. I've got I've got the photo in front of me as I speak. It's my 73 premiership teammates. It's right by my desk and computer, so I look at it quite regularly. The correct way to do things is numerical order. So if you're listening to episode 18, but you haven't yet listened to episode 17 with Andrew Vlahov, who is a former Perth Wildcat and Australian Boomers legend, then what are you doing? AV was incredible to chat to. He talks about the early days um, playing for Australia at the Seoul Olympics in 1988, coming to the Wildcats and winning three championships in 1991, 95 and 2000. And of course, owning the club as well and playing with guys who he was also paying their salaries at the same time. So, incredible chat. you got to listen to it. Here's a little snippet. Whilst we won the pre-season, our start to the season was terrible. Um, and I think we were at best 500. And this happened in the Canberra Cannons home gym, that coldest place on earth to play basketball. But we just lost to the Cannons. And... Um, and we had, you know, this is the 95 team. And we called a team meeting and I asked Adrian to leave the room. And to a man, we went around the table. We stood there. We were freezing. Um, we were icing and down after the game, but we were freezing. But we went around the room and we said, it stops here. Um, the accountability goes up uh, a million percent. And from that locker room, we felt like we had Sponged whatever demons were haunting us. Um, and we got back to playing some of the best basketball I think we've played. I think we went on an 11-game winning streak and we got a swagger happening that uh, and, a, and a cohesiveness that was really, really special. You know, everyone then understood and accepted their roles and I think that wasn't the case uh, in, the, in the teething process, you know, leading up to that game in Canberra. AV is definitely one of the best players we've ever produced here in Australia and a very successful businessman in his own right. But in the meantime, let's get back to Graham Corns. That's amazing. Do, do you actually remember your thoughts when you took the mark and when you go back and, and you look at the crowd and you have the set shot? Like, Do you do you remember what you were thinking in, in that moment? Well, I, I, I do. I, I, I remember hitting the ground. I'm lying flat on my back and the ball's sort of on my chest. And I knew... Because I kept, I just say to myself, I remember saying to myself, "Why me? You know, why me?" But then I went back and um, I had a sort of a routine: run straight, drop it straight, leg through straight. But as I walked back, and this is sort of a legendary story now, people think I made it up, but it, but I didn't. It actually happened. You, you can see some of the old vision. You might actually see what I mean. But as I as I was walking back on the angle between, right in the middle of the goals, as I looked at it, and there was a tree in the background. And there was a, a couple of kids in the tree, and one of the kids was just waving, like just waving, like holding, holding his hands up. So I sort of lined up with that, and you know, went back and ran in and watched the ball on the boot. It wasn't a very good looking kick. I've, you know, when you look at that replay, it's just, yeah, you know, I've, I've, it down. I've watched the, uh, just, the replay before. You know, it's a pretty ugly looking kick, but it actually goes straight. You know, spin probably goes straight. And then I was just, and it almost, um, like, I remember sobbing like a, like a, like almost overcome with emotion. But the game hadn't finished, so the game hadn't finished. I think 
went back to the centre. Luckily, he came back down and I nearly took another mark. Got my hands to it, <laughs> but it still then it got cleared. Fred Phillips had been left away from the goals, and he the ball went out to the you know just forward of centre. He kicked it back in, and and Sandy took the John Sandland took the mark and as the siren went. That mark was just an iconic moment in SANFL football. You obviously are an SANFL legend, 364 games, 317 of those for Glenelg, three best and fairest, obviously a premiership. But you did also play in the VFL. You played five games for North Melbourne, 10 goals at the age of 31. Uh, You played under Ron Barassi. There's a, a few questions with this one. First of all, what was your North Melbourne and VFL experience like? And why was it you only played the five games? Because those five games, I've looked at your stats and you're regularly getting 20-plus possessions. You kick goals in most of those games and doing well enough to keep yourself in the side. I know you got injured, but why was it you were only there for five games? Well, it's sort of a long story. It was, um, if you've got the time. But um, 1978 was a disappointing year for Glenelg. I've been captain my first year as captain, but John Nichols was the coach, and it was a unfortunately a, just a disappointing year. And and I'd had turmoil in my personal life. My marriage had broken up, um, and and I was, it was in a new relationship, which was 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 awkward as well. So at the end of the nineteen seventy eight season, North Melbourne, who'd been courting me over the years, Ron Joseph, the general manager, came over and said, "Look." This is your last chance. If you don't, if you don't come now, you never will. Because I was thirty, turning thirty-one, and uh, I waited all up. And given the disappointment at Glenelg at the t- time, and the fact that maybe you know fresh start would have been good, I I made I made made the decision to go. But I had I had a I'd never been overseas apart from go to Vietnam, which you couldn't call a holiday really. But I don't. I booked an overseas holiday for December and January, and I'd said uh, to Ron Joseph, "Look, I'm, I'm going to be away all of January. I'm going to be." He said, "No, you'll be fine. You'll be to have a few runs while you're away, and you'll pick it up when you get back." So I got to Melbourne early February, having missed some of the pre-season, and so that I was behind the eight ball a little bit then. But the thing about North Melbourne at the start of that 1979 season, and I say this, and I defy anybody to to rebut it. I think that's the best collection of football talent ever assembled when you look at that playing list in terms of Brownlow medalists. There's five Brownlow medalists in the team. There are McGarry medalists, Sandover medalists, state captains, club captains, legends of the game. If you just go back and look at that list with the guys like Glenn Denning and Blight and uh, Ebert, Keith Gregg, Schimmelbush, you know, just um, um, a fair, an amazing collection of talent. So, fair list. If you look at it, I mean, as I said, there's either four or five Brownlow medalists, certainly a couple of McGarry medalists as well. So anyway, um, so I got there and I was, I was behind the pump, but I played reasonably well in the trial games. I kicked 10 goals in one of the trial games against a team from Canberra, but, but the first couple of games I was playing forward pocket and I... I, I I hadn't reached my peak fitness. Blighty was dominating as full forward, and I was doing okay, but I, I wasn't playing well enough to really put your selection beyond doubt. And you, you just you have 
if you don't put your selection beyond doubt, you're going to be vulnerable. And with all these other good players that Ron Barassi had available, I played the first couple of games and then got dropped. So then I was in and out of the team. And then, but the thing, the realization having got there, because we had this mystique and there was all this aura around Victorian football, the old VFL, because we used to get the winners on some Sunday night and there was, we thought it was something really extra special. But when you actually got there and involved in the club, it was no bigger deal over there than how footy was over here. So I was a little bit disappointed in that regard. I mean, I, 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 as I said, I didn't play well enough to put the selection beyond doubt. So then there was a, we were having trouble settling in and I played one game, I played full forward against Hawthorne in Sydney, standing Kelvin Moore, and I didn't play well. I kicked a goal, but I did, we got beaten and I didn't play well and they said, look, and I was, I was clashing all the time with the, the assistant coach, Ray Jordan, who was a very aggressive, um, outspoken Victorian who didn't really like South Australians very much because <laughs> it was experience in footy, but also in cricket. He was a state cricketer. Did you know you were born so, in Victoria, though? No, I was South Australian. He knew I was South Australian. <laughs> <laughs> um, so then, you know, so I, you know, in the post-match review on the Sunday, Monday morning, Brass and Ray Jordan and said, "Look, look, we're going to drop you this week," um, which is fair enough. I hadn't played well enough, uh, and. I know things haven't worked out for you personally. It was early June. He said, if you if you want to go back before the end of June, uh, we won't we won't stand in your way. So we thought about it, and then we made the decision to go back. But the ironic part was then I was dropped back to the reserves for the next couple of games, and the form all of a sudden the form picked up. And the last game I played for North Melbourne was in the reserves against St Kilda at Moorabbin. Malcolm Blight was playing full forward in the, in the league team. A guy called Phil Baker, Snake Baker, who some players, some people might have heard of, took a massive, it's a massive mark. I probably didn't take a big mark at one stage. He was playing full forward. In the twos, well, in the first game in the twos, Phil Baker's done his knee. He's out for the year. And we're sitting up in the grandstand watching the league team play, and Blighty does his knee in the league team. So both the two full forwards are out for the year. So... So they come racing up into the grandstand. They said, look, you're going to have to stay. You know, I said, oh, we can't. committed to Glenelg to come back. We made the decision. Everything was, you know, we were leaving on the Monday. So I probably could have stayed. And, uh, but it was, I'd, I'd, had, I'd seen what I needed to see. I'd had a taste of it. Didn't, you know, I didn't make it, of course. But um, I was able to come back and pick up a career where I left off and, and played some pretty good football in, against Victoria in the subsequent state games. So it was a great experience. And the guys I met, when I, I really loved the guys. And, and we still had good relationships with uh, some of the friends that made in it, even though I was only there for six months. It was great. But it was a good experience. I mean, <clears throat> Ron Barassi was regarded as the greatest coach in Australia. But, you know, when you get there, the reality is not quite like that. We got on really well, despite what people might think. <laughs> but he was no better than Neil Curley or a Jack Odie or a John Cale, you know, if you know what I mean. Boss Williams, that type of thing. But that's pretty the interesting. Aura surrounding him and the Victorian hype. His image was built up to something perhaps larger than what it was. 
So in terms of his coaching ability, do you think it was overrated? Well, that's really hard to say because the record is the record. You know, he's a four-time premiership coach at different clubs. The record is the record. You can't discount the record. And he's, he's taking, February when he, he won premierships at North Melbourne and Carlton. Don't think he won it at Melbourne. Don't think he coached Melbourne. But so he was, you know, a great coach. But he wasn't Neil Curley. And he wasn't Jack Odie. Wasn't Foss Williams. <laughs> Yeah, probably, very cool. He probably he was probably closest to Foss Williams, I suppose, in terms of. But he, but I don't I don't I didn't see Foss at first hand. I didn't see Jack Odie at first hand. It's just again, it's just their records you look at. But when anyone anybody wants to query somebody's ability or status in the game, I, I just look at the record, and the record stands up. But he had an abusive manner about him, which to me. It was counterproductive to getting the best out of players. I mean, Keith Gregg was captain that year, and before the season started, he, he, he relinquished it. He stood down simply because of the way Ron Barassi spoke to him and treated him. You know, he could be really harsh, really harsh. He grew up in the old school under under Norm Smith. Now, Curls, Curls was a bit. Curls could be like that, but Curls had a bit more empathy. Um, a bit more psychology, even though he was never trained as a psychologist. But so, you know, I, I, I was disappointed a little bit in, in Ron Barassi. I wanted, I wanted more, but I still learnt. I still learnt from him. I still learnt some important things from him, without any shadow of a doubt. Yeah, interesting. Do you believe? And one thing I've listened. I mean, I've listened to a lot of interviews with you and seen you in the media and things like that. Do you? believe there is a so-called inferiority complex when it comes to South Australian football in comparison to Victorian football? Absolutely, I do. Absolutely. Yeah, we, we've always felt we're inferior and we've tried to compensate for it in, in different ways. I mean, we, we blow our own trumpet. In state games, we'd be overly aggressive. You know, we'd, we'd, we'd try to compensate with being overly aggressive, playing the man rather than just concentrate on the things we did really well so so I'd learned that by the time I was coaching the State of Origin team that we if we played our best football and and exploited the advantages we had as footballers and we did have some you know they were, Victoria's a great footy state and they have great players but there was things that we actually did better in in Adelaide and if we exploited them um, and didn't worry about whether we, you know, we had to match them physically, um, we had we, we can have some success. So even with like the AFL today, do you believe the AFL is biased towards Victorian clubs? Well, I do. Um, even though we've got a South Australian chief executive and a Western Australian chairman of the AFL commission, um, everything is, <laughs> you know the. The, the programming is done to suit Victorians. The scheduling, the, the television, um, you know, the, the elite games, uh, you know, the high-profile games are put on to favour Victorians. Like every Friday night game has to have a Victorian team in it. That, that sort of thing. So, you know, there's a there's a strong Victorian lobby, and 
they get enormous advantage. And, and, and I've always thought the Victorian, the umpires, given the fact they're based in Victoria, um, have a subconscious bias towards the, the Victorian team. I think the stats will tell you that as well. Yeah, because there always has been that notion that, especially the bigger clubs like your Richmonds and your, your Collingwoods, your Carlton's, Essendon, not not necessarily that they're just favoured, but that there is this this hint of um, preference in terms of the AFL. Yeah. Like, for example, right, uh, would the AFL prefer to have Collingwood versus Carlton in the grand final or, you know, Gold Coast versus Brisbane? It's not really that hard to figure that sort of thing out, is no. it? Not at all. Not at all. And the fact that, uh, you know, it, 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 the grand final's played at the MCG and will be played at the MCG from the middle of the 2050s, that's... I mean, it's, and, and and the people who get... Like the Melbourne Cricket Club members enjoy uh, elite access to AFL games. I mean, that's ridiculous when you think about it. Yeah, I, I do agree with that. You represented Australia 21 times. Firstly, I want to ask, what is it like to put the jumper and represent your state? Um, because, And especially these days, it's not really spoken about that much in this generation. You look at sports like rugby league, they're still state of origin, whereas AFL, they've it's, it doesn't exist anymore. Can you talk, you know, maybe to some of the listeners that may be of the new generation that don't know a lot about state of origin and, and what it meant to represent your state? Well, I guess I was fortunate. I had both. I had, I had, I was represented the state when you know it was purely a state team. That all the players were picked from the local teams. Then I played state of origin, where where the the, the guys came, the guys had moved to Victoria, came back and, and played in the team for us. So I saw both. But uh, before state, before the AFL really kicked off, before state, and we're talking, I guess. You know, before 1985, maybe before 19, maybe maybe even before. I think 1982 was the first state of origin game, on, which was between WA and Victoria, and then then it, all the state contests after that pretty much became state of origin. In the 70s, when I played my first state game, it was just I mean that was the that was the epitome. That was the as high as you could go in football, and to actually pull that red jumper on I mean you, it was just an amazing feeling to, to, to hold the red jumper and then to pull it on and have the photo taken and then to actually get one after you played the state game you, you cherished it there was no doubt about that so it was a big deal it was a big deal in the 70s when local footy was the you know the, the main focus as we got into the 80s and, and our best players were being recruited to Victoria the whole time uh, state of origin was you know, state of origin became the big deal where players would come back, and, and then in, in the, in the mid '80s to the late '80s, even the early '90s, the state of origin, the state of origin um, interest really ramped up. We had those amazing games at Footy Park in the '86, '87, you know, '88, '92 um, was probably the best game of football ever played. The '92 state of origin, and that was the second year of the Crows, so. There was still an enormous interest there, but I've got to say, the state of origin wasn't quite the same as when, you know, when it was just the best players in the sample playing the best players in the VFL. So, but it's special. That red jumper is special. It's a pity we we can't find a way of doing it because now, 
there's teams representing South Australia play every week, and it's just not the same. It isn't just it isn't the same. But it was amazing in the in the mid eighties. So does it bother you that you never played in a win against Victoria? Yeah, it does. And um, got close a couple of times, but but I knew when I coached the team that we could beat them, and then we did. I mean, we had a great record against Victoria, but it, I never played. We lost by five points in Adelaide over one year, and a few a few goals with the MCG. Uh, one of the State of Origin games, we got close, but we got close, but we didn't win. So. It was something, something that's missing from a footy, my footy CV, if you like. But I knew when I coached, we could beat them. I just knew it. Well, you won nine of 11 games uh, at, yeah. uh, as a coach. What about 1993? Was that the year you won at the MCG? Yeah, that was... Oh, see, that's, that's interesting because I don't think the, that state team gets the credit. So 1964, 63... 1963, the South Australian state team beat Victoria on the MCG. They came back to a hero's welcome, and they've been that team has been inducted in the SA Sport Hall of Fame. Now that was a great team, and it was a great it was a great effort because Victoria picked what they thought was a super team. But our state of origin team in 1993 had to do it at the MCG in rainy, poor, horrible conditions, and and. I just think that's sort of been swept under the carpet a little bit. It sort of disappeared into into footballs, <laughs> into the football records. Those those guys deserve to be given a lot more credit, I believe. But but it was a good win. Remember, I remember it clearly because it was a um, <laughs> it was the night I my wife and I my wife and I got engaged actually after all the drama after the game had finished and and then we'd had the team dinner and. She'd come across, and it was, you know, it became a special night. Actually, not just for the footy. Yeah, that's awesome. I didn't know that. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Your coaching career at club level: two premierships with Glenelg in eighty-five, eighty-six, when you smashed North Melbourne, uh, sorry, North Adelaide twice. Do you hold yeah. one premiership higher than the other? And what are your memories from from those two grand finals? Now, McGinnis, the game running very late. The siren is gone. The Bays have won back-to-back premierships for the first time. Graham Corns, the coach there. Uh, there's nothing like playing. The, the coaching of premierships, nothing like playing at one. The, the 73 one is, you know, that's that's really special. 85 was a relief because Glenelg played in so many grand finals between 73 and 80, 85 when, and lost them so that was a relief and I mean, that that again was a terrible time personally but but that's another story but so 85 was a relief and 86 we weren't favoured to win it North, North Adelaide were favoured we, we just smashed them in the first quarter and then ran away with it so that was that was more satisfying than so I coached for six years and played in five grand finals, but 
and won two. But the next year we we got to the grand final, but we were we were uh, you know we were shot by the time we got there. It was only a six day break between premier finals and. North North Adelaide were ready for us. They'd learnt the lessons from the two previous years, and they they smashed us in that um, '87 Grand Final. And then I thought we, we we did well to get to. We kept losing players to Victoria. I think I thought we did well to get to the other Grand Finals, but would love to have won 1990 against Port Adelaide, but they were too good. Referee says, fellas, take a break. It's half time. Hey, everyone. I just want to say a very big thank you to those who have engaged with A5Q. I really do appreciate all the support. I trust you're enjoying delving into all things Australian sport, and hopefully you will continue to stick around. It would be a massive help if you could please do me a solid. Subscribe to the podcast and hit me up with a rating and a review. Gaining as much positive feedback as possible helps boost my visibility and it allows the podcast to be seen by other Australian sports tragics out there. Now, enough of that. Let's get back into it because the second half of A5Q is about to get underway. Yeah, I've seen that video where you do the speech in the Port Adelaide rooms. That was really interesting after the game. Can I uh, just endorse uh, what Chris said? When you look at the uh, game, the team's on paper and look what happened during the start of the game. There was absolutely no logical reason why Port Adelaide should have won today. We had everything going for us in terms of the way the games fell for us in that regard and the way the first and second, the first quarter happened. When you look at the logical reasons, uh, you'd say, why didn't we win? And you've got to then look at the emotional reasons. And they encompass emotion, discipline, desperation, commitment. And that's where the advantage was, and that's where you guys were magnificent. And I really do. I want to say to John, well done. He's always a tough competitor, and he's done it very, very well. To the guys, you can be really proud of yourself. As I said, there was no logical reason why you should have done it. Family. But you... <laughs> well, it may be family. <laughs> in that regard, you have my, in that regard, you have my respect and my admiration. But I want to tell you that. Uh, you want to enjoy this moment for what it is, because the good times are well and truly gone. Apart from Jack and the players, there's a couple of individuals out there who are responsible for that. And uh, make sure you enjoy tonight, because the good, minds, the good times will not happen again. Well done, boys. <laughs> what do you want to know? Oh, just what was what was that all about? Well, it used to be tradition. You'd go in after the room and congratulate the winning team, you know. And um, But how old are you? 23. So I was born in 97. So you, have no, you have no idea, do you, what the 1990 footy season was like. It you was have no idea. I, you have no idea of what... I have... Went. Well, I've watched a few documentaries, but I'd like to hear it from the horse's mouth itself. Well, so 1990, where... We, South Australia kept losing players to Victoria. You know, the best players have been drafted. We'd initiated, the Sandford with the State Lottery had initiated what they called a player retention scheme to try and keep the best players and Adelaide to, to, you know, to reward them if they, if they qualified for playing a certain number of state games or 100 games or they were regarded as an exceptional talent. 
they were included in the in the in the player retention scheme, which gave them quite you know quite a um, significant amount of money for for staying. So there was a, there was always these overtures from the VFL and to include a, a team from South Australia. They wanted a team from South Australia. They had the team from WA had been in uh, since '86. Uh, Sydney had gone to Sydney, Fitzroy had gone to Brisbane, so they wanted a, they needed a team from South Australia, but we kept hanging, they wanted too much money, but South Australia kept hanging out, it was, probably was inevitable that we would, we'd have a team, we all thought it was inevitable, but we'd all, as 10 teams, we'd pledged that we wouldn't, we wouldn't put a team in until the conditions were right, so, you know, we got the right uh, concessions for players, or, and the license fee wasn't an, an exorbitant four million dollars, which which was what they were asking. But the the AFL were pretty sneaky, so they approached Norwood, and then they Norwood said, "No, we well, no, we won't do it." Or, or they either said, "We're not going to do it," or they waited too long to give them an answer because in the meantime they went and spoke to Port Adelaide, and Port Adelaide behind everybody's back did this agreement, signed these heads of agreement that they have the Port Adelaide Footy Club would leave the sample and go into the then VFL. So when that news broke, it was it was the most amazing time in South Australian footy history. It really was, because it was, you know, accusations of treachery and because their director Dave Boyd, the champion Port Adelaide player, had had was Port Adelaide director on the South Australian Footy Commission. They'd all sat down and pledged solidarity. So but Port Adelaide Line. So then that started this enormous eruption where there were court cases, there was an injunction taken out against Port Adelaide to stop them doing it. The Sample was sending delegations over to Victoria to the other clubs in Victoria to convince them that they shouldn't allow Port Adelaide in. And so, so in the end that all fell apart and uh, that bid fell apart. But Port Adelaide was still playing in the sample you know I was still playing in the sample of course and got through the so with this background Port Adelaide and then Glenelg who'd been one of the key instigators to, to block their move uh, ended up meeting in the grand final so and then so Port Adelaide beat us with a, a really courageous effort I mean, without any shadow of a doubt of it a really courageous effort but I was we were all so angry that the Port Adelaide officials could be so treacherous and try and do it behind everybody's back. Uh, so I made the point I wanted to, I wanted to congratulate Jack and the players for their brave effort because you know they they did it against the odds. They did it the hard way, but I didn't want to, I didn't want any of those puffed up officials in the room to. To get off scot free because they they destroyed football as we knew it, and you can say yeah like the AFL is good now, but footy has never been the same in South Australia. You know you get the you get the elite footy that's fine, but there was nothing like you know local footy at the at the local grounds, and it it ruined it for so many for no so many people. It's a, it's three generations ago now, so all the dust has settled, and we now have this elite competition and a second-tier sample. But it's nothing like footy was in the old days of the sample, and that's what I meant. Good times are over. So, so needless to say, back then Port Adelaide wanted to be in the AFL 
first, basically. They got to because they said, look, if, if, if you don't, Nord's waiting. If you don't, if you don't sign these heads of agreement, Nord will. So they they just got sucked in. They 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 had this ambition, or they came up with this ambition that they that they would be, you know, the first team from South Australia in the in the in the, in the VFL. It would never have worked because had they gone in had they gone in in 1991 against everybody's wishes, they would have fought the whole state. It would have been honestly they, they wouldn't have had a following. They would have they would have been. But bankrupt as it is, with uh, with the Sandful support, without the Sandful support, they they would have they would have floundered like the West Coast Eagles lost to three or four million dollars in the first couple of years. Now Port Adelaide with two thirds of the state against them, with no ground to play on. Oh, Adelaide Oval perhaps, but but they would have they would have floundered. They yeah, it wouldn't have been a good time. Or found, floundered or founded, you know what I mean? They yeah, I know floundered. what you're saying. <laughs> you know what I mean, but it would have been it would have been a, a, a bridge too too far for them. It's worked out better for them having to wait. I mean, they they came in, they've been successful, they continue to be successful. Nothing like they were when under Sandford, though. The club itself, the success they had in the SNFL or have had in the SNFL hasn't hasn't translated over to the AFL the way they assumed it would have. Well, because it's hard. I mean, it's really hard. The AFL is designed for equality. You know, the good teams aren't supposed to stay at the top. Bottom teams aren't supposed to stay at the bottom. I mean, they've done pretty well. I mean, they won a flag. They played in another grand final, and they've been competitive for you know a percentage of the years. But but then that's not the Port Adelaide of the old sample. No, fair call. So we're talking about 1990. So that was the year, of course, the Crows were established. I want to talk about this time here. How did the coaching job come about for you? And now looking back at it 30 years later, what does it mean to you to be the first ever Adelaide Football Club coach? Because that's something no one can ever take away from you. Well, I've never dwelt on that. Um, uh, It is what it is. So, So... A part of the club. But look, if I can go back, I guess after the 19... We knew by the final series of 1990, and after all the Port Adelaide drama, after their bid had been blocked, we knew there, was, there had to be a team from South Australia um, into the VSL the next year. So, and I'd been the state of origin coach for the, for, for the previous five or six years and had good success. So I, I just assumed I'd be one of the candidates. I don't think that's being big-headed. I just assumed I'd be one of the candidates. So we lost the we lost the 1990 grand final, and the, there wasn't such a thing as the Adelaide Footy Club at that stage. There just there, there was, but but we knew there was going to be. And uh, Bob Hammond, Neil Curley, and the, a guy called Murray Tippett, who was an official at the Sample, uh, were going around trying to convince. Because there wasn't an Adelaide Footy Club, but we knew we we knew there would be, and we needed to keep the players here. But the Victorian teams also knew there was going, so they were, they were trying to quickly get players before the Adelaide Footy Club became right. So that's why guys like Gavin Wanganin and David Hines, and Justin Staritsky and uh, Matthew Robran, and even Darren Jarman. That's that's why they 
didn't end up playing for the Crows in the first year, even though they should have been eligible because they they, they weren't protected in any way. So they were trying to get guys to sign a heads of agreement to stay in Adelaide to play for this new, as yet to be formed Adelaide Footy Club. So after a couple of a couple of weeks after the grand final, I was invited to come and speak to. They had an interim board. They'd formed an interim board to run the Adelaide Footy Club, and I was invited to present to that board, which I did. But I'd spent over this, because we'd lost the grand final. I had plenty of time on my hands. I could sort of sit down and work out a, a presentation and a program that, that I thought would be apt for a, a new squad. So I was able to present that. Then I was invited back again. But John Carr was too. Um, and I remember speaking to Bob Hammond before he passed away last year. And Bob made the point that John Carr's presentation was also really impressive. Um, and it wasn't the gap that people would have thought, but it would have been hard for him as the Port Adelaide coach to, to take over. But anyway, after the second interview, Max Bashir walked out and he said, look, I think you'll be right. So, so when was it? It was end of October. End of, end of October, I was appointed as coach. Um, there was just, <laughs> there was just, Bill Sanders had been appointed as general manager and there was myself and then Neil Curley had been appointed as football manager and we we didn't have any officers, didn't have any gear. So we we named a squad of 60-odd players from Sandville. We could only pick South Australian players, and we weren't allowed in the draft until the end of the second year. So we had to pick just the South Australian players who were, who were left. And we could only pick 10 of the players who had previously been drafted. Bear in mind, all the, all the good players had been drafted in the previous years. So we were only allowed to pick 10 of them. And so we got the guys together and... They trained harder than any groups trained, I guess, between that November and that Christmas. And that's sort of how it unfolded. They trained hard, they were fit, confident, and then we played a trial game against uh, um, Essendon. Against Essendon in early February 19, uh, in 1991 and beat them, surprisingly. For those of you who do not know, three-quarter time here on A5Q means giving you all a little bit of a sneak peek preview of another guest I have coming on the show in due time. Now, another guest I've had the pleasure of sitting down and having a chat to is inaugural Perth Wildcat captain Mike Ellis. He, he is a lovely bloke to chat to first off. And he shares some incredible stories. He talks about those early days at the Perth Wildcats when, of course, they were known as the West State Wildcats. He talks about numerous things that occurred, um, you know, all, some of the background stories of the Perth Wildcats, including uh, the tragic death of Scott Fenton. He talks about off-court issues with Tiny Pinder, Cal Bruton's sort of acrimonious end at the end of the 1990 season, which... Was, was a bit weird because they won the championship that year. So he talks about the, the great times of the, the 90 championship and then the, the, the departure of Cal Bruton. Talks about Murray Arnold's time at the club as well and how his retirement was probably a little bit earlier than he would have liked. So here's a little snippet. Yeah, clearly it's in the back of your mind. You're, you know, you're constantly thinking, what, what, what is that about? Because we had no idea. We had no idea about any of that. Um, it was the first time we'd seen anything. Uh, like that, the first time we'd heard anything um, relating to Tiny. So we had no idea what it was for, why it was. You know, we didn't know what the charges were. We didn't know any of that. So all we know is he'd been arrested. So it could have been for anything. So as players, we kind of rallied around him and said, "All right, let's 
let's just focus on this for the time being. Let's deal with that afterwards. Let's deal with this. Let's let's take care of business here, and then we'll take care of that business afterwards. So he got a huge amount of support in actual fact, and uh, we came out. I, I think you know what I think it did. It actually bonded us closer. It really did as a group, and it galvanised us. Um, and we went out, and we we played really well, and, and Tony was ridiculous in it. Then after the game, then we found out a little bit more detail. The following day, we had a team meeting, and Terry came in and explained what was going on and what had happened. Whether you're a Wildcats fan or not, Mike Ellis is a must-listen to, and an episode I think everybody's going to really enjoy. But for now, let's get back to SANFL legend and inaugural Adelaide Crows coach, Graham Corns. What about the first game, round one, 1991? You smashed Hawthorne by 86 points. They're the eventual premiers that year. They had Dunstall, Langford, Burden, Ayres, even Darren Jarman, and Matthew Robin as well. What are your memories from that first game, and how did a startup club in front of 46K at Amy Stadium back then, Football Park, how did you win by such a massive margin? A credit to the public of South Australia. They've given the Crows full support. And here they go to open the season, to open their AFL career. Crows have really done everything right tonight. I, I haven't found a cheat in the sock as the siren goes. Lidner will want to finish it off. He shoots towards goal. Oh, he finishes it off all right. A marvellous victory for the Adelaide Crows. Bruce Lidner finishes the night with four goals. And an 86-point win to the Adelaide Crows in their AFL home and away debut. Well, we'd had a good pre-season. We had pre- and we'd played in the, um, I think it was called the Foster's Cup. And we'd had a couple of wins in the Foster's Cup. I think we got through to December. We, played, we beat Essendon in a trial game. We beat Geelong in the Foster's Cup. I think we beat Fitzroy, but I'm... Anyway, North Melbourne beat us in one of the semi-finals. We got... It was a really good lead-in. And the thing that I think helped us in, in that game, Hawthorne, the previous week, won the Foster's Cup. So I think they celebrated. They didn't pay the respect that, you know, should have been paid. We were playing in front of... It was a beautiful night. It was just a beautiful night. We had this packed house just roaring for everything we did. And everything we did worked. Everything was just an amazing game of footy. And we just went further and further ahead. We just got off to a good start and kept going. Because some of these guys had played in, some of them, not not that many, but some had played in the State of Origin games. And you knew if you could, if you could apply the pressure and use the ball, use the ball quickly and accurate, you know, you could, you could play against these you know, highly... Um, these, these, these highly regarded players, even, even though they had bigger names, like the names you mentioned are unbelievable, legends. But um, but if you take it up to them and make the contest and use the ball quickly and accurately, you know it, it's not that hard. Particularly if they, it, particularly if they're five percent off, and, and I, they were five percent off at least, and we weren't. We we're at we we're at hundred percent. Was it a surprise though to win by that much? No, you don't think of winning by 80 points. You just don't think. You, you think of doing enough to win. You think you have, you have a 
you have a plan to win, you know, you break it down into individual contests, but no, you couldn't have predicted you went by 81 points. It just was a perfect night of footy. Two years later, so 1993 was the year where Adelaide really could have and, and probably should have gone a little bit further. Tony Modra, 129 goals that season. Crows have five players in the All-Australian team and you reach the preliminary final against Essendon. 42 points up at half time, but you, you can't finish the job. I've had Dustin Fletcher on the show and he spoke of it from the other side of the spectrum. But what exactly went wrong after half time? And next week will be playing Carlton. It's been one of the most remarkable games in the long history of this great game. To be seven goals behind at half time. That's it. Well, there's a couple of things over. We, I didn't. I underestimated. I underestimated a couple of their players. Like Sean Denham was supposed to be a tagger. You know, he was supposed to. You know, I anticipated he would tag Tony McGuinness, and he did. But he got off the leash. Michael Long got off the leash, you know. Um, I didn't... I didn't play enough... I didn't pay enough attention or impart enough demands to our midfield for their defensive action. And it was as simple as that. They, you know, Kevin Sheedy, I spoke to him about it. As he said, he told, look, we've only got to kick the next two goals and we've got the rest of the game to kick five goals. And that's what, that's what happened. And we missed two really easy, like Sean Wren missed a goal before half time. Andrew Jarman missed a goal in the last quarter, like easy goals. And, and I don't think we'd, so we'd played away from home for the, almost the, the previous month. And I've, I've often said the guys didn't, didn't recover, rehydrate and prepare well enough. You know, we came back after the first final, we beat Hawthorne in the first final, that was amazing. And at the MCG as well. At the MCG. Yeah, we, came, we came back to Rockstone. Welcome. And the guys were, uh, you know, just got ahead of themselves. And we played Carlton the following week at Waverley. Kicked like 21 points, I think. Eight, 21, if I'm, something like that anyway. <clears throat> and and that game took a bit more out of them. Than the, but, I, and, but I don't, you know, I, I blame myself. But I'd also question whether the guys did enough individually to... To, to recover, having the yeah, as I said, playing away every week for the previous month, basically, and on that big ground at Waverley, you did need time to recover. So, so that impacted on, on our ability to run that game out. But I, I, I blame myself because I didn't recognise the, I didn't recognise quickly enough the dangers of their midfield because we'd been so dominant in the first half. And I it was just expected that we could continue that that dominance, but we didn't. And and I'll be blunt here: the the free kicks we didn't get in that last half are disgraceful. When you look at the look at the umpiring, I think it was fifteen to one, fifteen free kicks to one. I've watched the the whole game on replay before, and yeah, some of those free kicks I can understand you being a bit upset about them because they are quite dubious. Uh, and umpires make a difference. I don't care what anybody says. Umpires can make a difference. I've, I've done it before when, when I've been umpiring charity games to try and keep a game even and interesting. We've made decisions which keep it keep it keep it in. Now I'm not saying umpires do it deliberately, 
but umpires can make a difference if they make the wrong decision or don't pay. Uh, it's not so much the free kicks you give away because they're generally there. But it's the free kicks you don't get that should have been paid. Anyway, this is what it is. You get what you deserve. We didn't deserve to win it. We didn't, you know, we hadn't set our sights high enough to start. Well, nobody dreamed we could win a flag in our first three years. But no, I would never, I would, I would, with, with the time again, I wouldn't make that mistake again. But as I said, you get what you deserve. I don't coach anymore. Not necessarily you specifically, but do you reckon a lot of the players and some of the staff may have thought to a certain extent, if we just keep doing what we're doing, we'll just win? Did you think maybe 42 points was a winnable half-time margin and you didn't really need to change too oh, many yeah, things? No, look, that's exactly what the message was because oh, it's a long story, but I'd coached Glenelg um, one day. We had a sports psychologist, a guy by the name of Scott Way, who was, was he was really good. No, no, not many teams, if any, used sports psychologist in the sample, but we did. And we, and we were we were killing this team one day, like again, six or seven goals up maybe. And at half time, I've I've launched into the players because they were strutting around with big heads, and you know, I, I, I didn't think they were serious. So, so I so I really gave it to them. I said, don't don't sit there thinking this game is over. Do not think this game is not over. They're not going to they're not going to lie down. They're going to come back at you. They will come back at you. You're going to be prepared now. Okay, so we held on. We won that game, but they the team came back and gave us a bit of a fright. So this Scott Way, the sports psychologist, came up after the game and he said, well, after I debriefed the guys, he said, well, you know what happened then, don't you? And I said, what? What? Yeah, they came back at us. He said, no. He said, no. At half time, you implanted a self-fulfilling prophecy in these players' minds. And uh, that was that was that was always going to happen because they they in their minds subconsciously were going to allow it to happen. So I thought, oh, geez, okay, that's a bit that's a bit heavy, but it sort of made sense, you know. When you tell a kid, don't you know, don't touch that, they'll touch it. You know, don't do this, they'll do it. Well, they attempted to do it, put it that way. So at halftime of that game against Essendon at the MCG, I went back to that moment with Scott Way. And they're going to, so my point wasn't they're going to come back at you. My point was, look, we've got ourselves in this position by doing this, that, and that. Let's keep doing it. If we keep doing this, we're going to kick the first couple of goals after half time, and you can put it beyond doubt. So it was all about positive reinforcement. I've often wondered whether I went the other way, whether I really sat them down and tore into them and told them to, you know, get their, get their heads back on their shoulders whether it would have had, had a different... You know, I, I, I'll, never, I'll never know that. And they, they talk about, you know, the legendary bout of flatulence that Mark Bickley had before the team ran out, that sort of... Uh, sorry to cut you off, but is that story true? Well, the player... I, I wasn't aware of it, and I certainly didn't hear it or smell it, but, see... <laughs> but Chris, Chris, Chris McDermott told the story again on, uh, on the front bar last week, so it obviously happened, but... Again, wow. I'm not sure of that. But look, I did. They, their midfield got on top. We didn't do enough to, to stop it. And Sean Denham kicked. How many goals did he kick? He kicked he's not supposed to kick goals. He's a tagger. You know, he just got away. They got away from us. I think, they were, uh, 
they were in complete disarray, isn't it, before half time. The Chidi got them back, settled them back down again, put them back in their positions, and and went on with it. It was a great win, and we were the we were the victims because we didn't do it well enough. Do you ever think about yourself in terms of had the Crows won that and gone into the grand final, and had you beaten Carlton? I know it's a lot of hypotheticals, but if you had a taken a club to an AFL premiership in their third season, that's unheard of. Do you ever do you ever think what the name Graham Corns would have been in terms of the AFL if if you had a won that nine three premiership? I don't complain at all. I mean, I I, I, you know, I have thought about that, but I reckon I would have been a complete pain in the neck, to be quite frank. You know, like you you, you win a premiership in your third year, you, you 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 get ahead of yourself again. You think that your your word is your word is gospel. You start you do start to believe your own hype and your own publicity. So I uh, maybe. Maybe footy would have been better, but I think from a personal point of view, in terms of personal development, um, it's worked out better for me. It definitely has worked out better for me because I was, you know, I've had a, another life after that. Uh, uh, Nicole and I um, got got married just after that. I've had three daughters. I never ever thought I'd have three daughters. So, yeah, I do. I, I do occasionally think of it, but I think like. It is what it is. You get what you, you get what you deserve, and there's no point lamenting the fact that you weren't good enough. Yeah, it's a good perspective there. The year after '94 wasn't the greatest seasons. You only won the nine games and you missed the finals. The club felt they needed a Victorian, I guess, a Victorian impact. Um, so they appointed Robert Shaw, and you got sacked. What were your thoughts there, and how did you deal with that at the time? Well, it's a blow to your ego, um, but. You've got to put it beyond doubt. And our ex- we had such high expectations after '93. When you don't live up to the expectations, there's going to be repercussions. Now I couldn't convince. There was a couple of guys on the board who really had no idea, to be quite frank. Really, you know, just got carried away with their own importance. So I, I lost the confidence of the board. I obviously alienated a few players because I was hard on them. And my theory was. If you if you work hard, you can work your way out of it. So that didn't always go over well with some players, and some players who who whose performances were wanting had to be told that they didn't like being told that. So so the club made a change, and as I said, you you've got to put it beyond doubt. Didn't put it. We did not. We won nine games and drew one. Now. It's not a it's not a totally disastrous season. I see some of these clubs who win three or four games a year, and they um, and the coach hangs in there. So I, I think we probably would have recovered, but I wasn't the one to help them recover. Well, they did recover. Robert Shaw had a couple of tough years, but I think he's often maligned, given the fact that he did help. I mean, he brought some really good players in, like champion players into the into the team, and then. And Blighty came with his own unique talents and skills and experience because he'd been he'd been there three times with Geelong and hadn't won. So, when, and bear in mind the Crows in in um, 90, 90, hang on, 97, 98, they weren't the best team in the competition. 
Oh, no way. No way. They probably weren't even the best forward. But Blighty had a way of galvanising them, and particularly in 98. What an amazing performance that was in 98 to get through. Lost the first, got smashed by Melbourne in the first game. First finals game, and then had to go to Sydney, and then in Sydney, you know. Tropical downs, downpour, but uh, that again, you know, right, right person, right time. Absolutely, everything happens for a reason. Cornsy, I just want to ask you real quickly: uh, your sons, Chad and Kane, both legends of of Port Power Football Club. What did it mean to you in two thousand and four to see both your boys achieve the ultimate glory together as a part of that two thousand and four premiership? because it's it's the culmination of their dreams and you do you know you do live vicariously through your son's performance you, you know you do watch and hope and, for their success so it was a massive day for the Corns family it was a, a really proud day that they'd both been good players that Port Adelaide had been a really good team the two previous years hadn't got through to the grand final and but you know it all came together in 2004 and they were really important parts of it so it was one of one of the great football days one of the one of the best one of the best days in the family of course you know they're Port Adelaide legends have always been a lot of drama between Port Adelaide and me but um, they they love playing at Port Adelaide and they're as you say they're they're both legends of the club yeah, beautifully said there, Cornsey. Four last questions, and I always ask my guests these in one sentence, if you don't mind. Good luck. <laughs> Most people do struggle with them. Who is the best player you ever played with and why? Who is the best player you ever played against and why? Who is the best coach you ever played under and why? And who is the best player you ever coached and why? Oh, well, do the guys at North Melbourne count? Because I played with Russ Lieber, Russ Glendinning. And, Any level. Uh, SNFL, AFL, State of Origin, doesn't matter. No, well, I, don't think it, I don't think five games with Russ Glendinning. He, he's a great player. Russell's a great player. So, so at Glenelg, it's either Peter Carey or Peter Marker. Um, Peter Carey is unbelievable. He's a ruckman and a prodigy. Kimmy Hodgson was really good, too. I mean, he's, not, he's often underrated. So, but I'd have if I had to t- say one, it would be Peter Carey, I guess. Peter Carey, the one I played against. Well, I played against Barry Robin and I played against Russell Lee, but I didn't stand Russell very often. But I still Barry a couple of times, and he and he always beat me because he was a magnificent player. Phil Carmen slips in there, you know. Phil Phil Carmen was tough. Um, so. <laughs> I played centre half back on the Athletic one day, and he kicked four goals in the first ten minutes of the game. At he played for Port Adelaide, so he kicked four goals in ten minutes on me. So if you equate that out, that was sixteen goals. But he didn't get on with it, so he, he always gets a mention. But like Barry Robin was just amazing. Well, he was the greatest. Phil Carmen could have been Neil Curley, obviously. He's you know, he's been a such a dominant person in my life. Coached me for 10 years. Gave me every opportunity to play. 
um, picked me in the state. I came back from I came back from North Melbourne with my tail between the legs, really. And he picked me the very next week to play for South Australia in WA against Western Australia. So without any shadow of a doubt, it's cool. Uh, well, I coached Peter Carey. Like he gave me a hard time. I coached Chris McDermott. You know, I coached Tony Montra. Yeah, you know, coached. Modra in 93 would have been amazing. The guys who don't have great... Uh, well, Mark Bickley's Hall of Famer, but he was great to coach. Matty Littak was great to coach. You know, but Tony Simons was great to coach at Glenelg. And, and, um, and Martin Leslie was great to coach in State of Origin games. It's just, that, I, I can't now... I'm, I'm now just, just rattling off those names. I'm, I'm missing out another... You know, twenty players who I who I should include in there. I guess it's, um, it was great. Mark Bickley was good to coach. Ben Hart was great to coach. You know, the, the Mark Bickley sort of sit up and took notice all the time, and that's why he was he went from being a fringe player, unlikely to get a contract at the Crows, to just getting a contract, to then being captain, then being Premiership captain, and then being an Australian Football Hall of Famer because he. He took notice, and he tried to learn, and he and he busted his gut. Cornsy, I respect that. Very big thank you for coming on the show. It's been awesome to chat. All the best, mate. And that's a wrap. Thank you to everyone for tuning into A5Q. Don't forget to spread the word, subscribe, leave a rating. Until next time, old sport.